This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, here for today's show on the relationship between courage, clarity, and career success, explained as only Kate White could. For 14 years, Kate was the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan Magazine, following successful stints at Glamour, Mademoiselle, Child, McCall's, Red Book, and Working Mother Magazine. Since her time at the helm of Cosmo, Kate has become the best-selling author of 12 murder mysteries and thrillers and several very popular career books, including Why Good Girls Don't Get Ahead But Gutsy Girls Do, which has recently been updated and released as the Gutsy Girl Handbook, Your Manifesto for Success. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. If you'd like to call in, you can also email patty at business radio at SiriusXM.com, which is always exciting because then when Patty gets an email, she actually prints it out and brings it into the studio for me, so I get to say hello. So give us a call. Send us an email. We'd really love to hear from you. Um, And whether it's that you have a question for Kate about her career in publishing or how you can help your gutsy self emerge, we'd really love to hear from you. So that's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. And while you dial into Patty and conjure your questions for Kate, I'm delighted to say welcome Welcome to Women at Work, Kate. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be with you today. We're so excited that you're here. I mean, Kate, you've done so much. And in particular, you've been at the helm of magazines that are absolutely iconic. Um, They're not just household names, but millions of us, me included, have read them (laughs) at various stages in our lives, whether they were entertainment or they helped us navigate like some of the most intimate and confusing times that we've ever gone through. So, you know, you're connected to an iconic part of our lives. So thanks for all your work. Oh, thank you, Laura. Even though magazines are kind of hitting the skits these days, it was a fabulous experience. And I meet so many women who say magazines help shape their lives in a good way. (laughs) Yes. Some, maybe not always in a good way, but they (laughs) did have a profound effect. So I have a question for you. As a consumer of these magazines that, you know, what I read, what I saw helped shape me as a person. How did working on these shape you as a person? Well, in so many good ways. First of all, I think I worked with a lot of fabulous women because I was mostly in women's magazines. And I have just lifelong friendships. In fact, I'm having lunch tomorrow with this group of women. When I was a young writer at Glamour Magazine and I left, they this group of women uh, took me out to lunch. They were just my pals in the articles department. And they wanted to take me out to lunch. And there was one really bitchy girl. And I said, look, do you mind if we go out to dinner so we don't have to include her? We didn't want to make her feel embarrassed by not inviting her. But at dinner, it wouldn't matter so much. She wouldn't be able to be aware we'd snuck off. So we went to a Turkish restaurant. We had so much fun. And for some reason, we'd never really hung together socially. And that night was so great. Somebody goes, we've got to do this again. And I said, yeah, we could call ourselves the Turks because we were at a Turkish restaurant. Well, that was 
like 40 years ago, and the Turks are still a group, and we see each other whenever we can. And so that's just part of what was wonderful about it. And I would say the other part, just quickly, is that I was passed over for a job in my early 30s and, and told confidentially by my former boss that it was because I was a woman. And I think I love women who stay in there for the fight, mm-hmm. but I pivoted at that moment and said, I'm going to go back to women's magazines so I won't have that obstacle. So I was able to rise in women's magazines and and really do incredibly well professionally and financially. And in, in a way, I might not have that during that period in another type of magazine. So, you know, you're stating something that seems obvious, but I want to explore it a little bit, which is that to confirm that these magazines really were um, that the professional staff at these magazines were predominantly female? Yeah, and gay men, which made it all the more fun. <laughs> you know, it was like, how how could work be any more fun? And it was just so incredibly fun, particularly at Cosmo, which because it was a bit of an overtop magazine, it, it tended to draw a lot of rule breakers mm-hmm. and people who were just uh, willing to take chances it was working there could not have been more exciting and entertaining. So in addition to just working with really good people, it was an exciting place to work. And there were definitely guys at Cosmo, but I would say uh, it was predominantly women. With each of your um, the shifts, as you went through each of these magazines, what were you what were the skills that you were conscious of building because you started as a writer and wound up as an editor-in-chief. And while, yes, it's all about the content, that's a business role too. You know, no one, Laura, has ever asked me that question, but it's so important. When, when I started out, mostly I wanted to be a writer. And I think a lot of young people in in the media business loves having a byline. And I saw <laughs> that even for the young women who work for me, it was all about that. But you began to see that you didn't move up by being a writer. You moved up by being an editor. And so I started on the side to help out the articles editor. She she actually wasn't one of the nice women I met in magazines, <laughs> but she needed someone to help her because the amount of content had exploded as the magazine business really took off. So I got some editing skills, and then I realized I've got to go someplace where I can become an editor. And I took a job at a little Sunday supplement office. The supplement was called Family Weekly. And it was in, I think, um, like three, over 300 newspapers, had 28 million readers. But it was a schlocky little thing. It was like the poor man's parade. But it was a place where I strengthened my strengths. And I always tell people, don't worry so much about your weaknesses. You can manage around those, but strengthen your strengths. And there I edited so many articles every week that I became really sure, very sure-footed as an editor. And what's interesting about that place, the people who worked there later went on to edit the, the following magazines, Sports Illustrated, Esquire, GQ, wow. Cosmo, Oh, the Oprah Magazine, Red Book, 17, American Health. Me, Cosmo, McCall's, uh, and just so many other magazines. And we're, I don't know any other place that gave birth to that many editors in chief, but it was because you could 
strengthen your strength. Oh, in Philadelphia Magazine, too, which I should say. <laughs> yes, thank but you. You could, you could strengthen your strengths there. And it's really important once you have a sense of what you really want to do mm-hmm. and what you're passionate about to work at that strength building. I want to unpack part of um, that story because it seems like there's two critically important pieces to it. So one is that, you know, it was funny, as you were leading into the story, you talked about, you know, it was like the poor man's parade. Um, Yet it was a serious environment for building your craft. Right. And so um, it, it feels like there's a message in there, particularly when we're young in career, to not always worry about the name brand, but instead right. to look at what's the work that we actually get to do. Yeah, you want to be at some point a, a big fish in a small pond, I think. It, it, you, you get great jobs when you've worked great places, but it's also good to possibly do a stint someplace where you're doing a lot of cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Like the, the people I edited at that magazine, because what we would do, we we would get really big names when they had books coming out. This is my idea, actually, to do pieces for us. And we would we couldn't afford to pay them that much money, but they would want, when their book was coming out, they would want 28 million readers. It's great publicity. It's brilliant. Right. So I got so many big name writers to write for the magazine. And so at a certain point in time, I had a lot of experience that I wouldn't have gotten if I was a small fish in a big pond. Right, because there's room for you to be creative, for you to step right. up, to get visibility for what you're doing. And the stakes aren't as high if something goes wrong. Oh, gosh, I'm, I can't believe you said that. And yes, because you make a lot of mistakes in your 20s and 30s, and I made <laughs> some there. <laughs> we make them but, through our whole lives, but there was a lot then. <laughs> yeah, there were really a lot, and there are some bad ones. But because the stakes are so high, it wasn't like I made a bad mistake at Time Magazine. At Family Weekly, maybe even some of the readers didn't even notice. <laughs> <laughs> So there's something else I want to ask you about, which is that, you know, you talked about the that learning to edit. Editing is a craft that's different than writing, and it builds upon yeah. it. But it also means that um, you're, you have to understand the role differently. Would you talk to me a little bit about the difference between being the writer or the editor and how you started to wrap your head around that so you weren't being both? Yeah, it's really interesting because the glamour seems to be early on in the writing. And I think there might be a comparison to television, your producer of the talent. Mm-hmm. And you have to let go of your need for the, for the glamour or what seems to be the glamour when you decide you're going to edit because you're making the writer look good and you're not getting the byline. But there is such a thrill to be being the person who shapes it, who packages it, who comes up with a brilliant title for it. And over the years, I've had articles I edited turn into books. One of them, I remember once I actually had had the idea why 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 French women don't get fat. Of course, now I wouldn't <laughs> say it that way, but but you would. And there was no. Guy. I remember the book. Yeah. And I had this, I'd read a study that uh, French women uh, just, they walked a lot, they ate smaller portions, they did certain things. Right, they didn't eat processed food, right. Right. I thought this will make a great article. And the next thing you know, it's a book. So you have to let go of the need 
to have that kind of glamour, but there's a thrill in the packaging, just as I'm sure producers feel about putting on shows and, and entertainment and news and all of that. And But they're very different skills. You, in some ways, with writing, you, you, you want to be out there and really grab the, the, the reader. Editors sometimes help writers do that, but they also sometimes maybe help them be a little bit more careful. It also, it seems to me like part of the joy, especially as I've moved from being, um, you know, in, in stages of my life, the designer to the art director or the producer or the person running the event, that right. your, your, your reach, your scope grows exponentially because you're enabling the work of other people. Yeah. And once you come to accept that there's real power in that and excitement, that then, then you really enjoy it. It, absolutely. But it takes a certain maturity to to let go of the need to have the byline. Absolutely. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I am talking with the amazing Kate White, author of The Gutsy Girl Handbook, Your Manifesto for Success. If you've got a question for Kate, you'd like to join in the conversation, give us a call. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Or you can write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And we just heard from our beloved... Love it, Julian Cinnaminson. So, Kate, Julie writes, I'm so excited to hear about writing and publishing on my favorite show. I want to write a mystery novel like Kate. Can she talk <laughs> about her process? I mean, is oh. there a ton of research? Did somebody help her with that? Does it take long? Any tips on getting started? So what oh, kind of... That's a, so that's first of all, Julie, question. thank you for writing. We love that you're always out there. Um, and so what would you say to Julie? Well, Kind of going back to what you and I were talking about, Laura, how writing is different than editing. Fiction writing is so different than nonfiction. And you may have heard people say that nonfiction is all about telling and fiction is about showing. And so you do have to, I think, almost just write for a little while, try some some fiction without a big plan just to help yourself burn off some of the need to tell <laughs> okay, because you just want to show it. But uh, in terms of doing it, just a quick couple quick pointers. You To sell fiction, you almost always have to have the whole book done, which isn't always true with nonfiction books. You have to have an agent if you want one of the big publishing companies to publish it. Of course, we now know you can publish uh, your, your, yourself and self-publish stuff. I think with mysteries... What I generally do is start with a germ. Uh, maybe it's a headline someplace or just something someone says, and then you play the what-if game. Okay, what if this happened to her? What if after she stepped off the elevator that happened? And you start to ask yourself questions that end up building a really interesting narrative. A great book is Stephen King's on writing. He, he offers some wonderful suggestions. And lastly, I would just say there are two options. They, uh, mystery writers talk about being pantsers or plotters. Plotters <laughs> plot it out. Uh-huh. Pantsers go by the seat of their pants. <laughs> I'm a big believer. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be a pantser, Laura, simply because I would never want anyone to call me that word. Pantser? Who wants to be a pantser? But pl- I plot them out. And I think in the beginning, that's great to do where you sort of know who the killer is, you know why the person killed, you know your suspects, 
And that allows you, it makes it easier for you to leave not only clues, but also red herrings, which are important. False clues, because you want to trick your reader. It's fascinating to hear the the um, methodology behind it, the craftiness, you know, of how you think about the components that lead us into this totally engaging experience. Yeah, and part of what's really fun, as long as you get a... You could be nervous in the beginning because you wonder, if I ever, am I ever going to have an idea? But once you know, eventually you get an idea because I've written 13 now. <laughs> yeah. And there was a panic for number two, let me tell you. I mean, it took me three years to get one idea. But then they start. you start to learn how to do it. The magic, the rush of when you start to play that game where you just maybe – once I looked at the word twins, I thought – I want to do something with twins, then what if? And then the, just the, the thrill of following that thread and seeing where it takes you. It, you make it sound so enchanting. And yet I know that from my own creative practice, that fear, like you can look at a blank piece of paper and it can be daunting. But I love the recommendation you have to just start writing. A book that I turn to, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, is Bird by Bird. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that, too. That's a great one, too. I think along with Stephen King, those two books can really help you. And I also hear a lot of people recommend going and working in a, like a little writer's group. Mm-hmm. The libraries sometimes sponsor this. So you get feedback from other writers. And I know people have mixed feelings about it. But overall, most people I know have said they benefited from doing that because it gives you deadlines. You are getting feedback. It reminds me of um, how I learned to train for a marathon. Like, I didn't wake up one day Mm. as a couch potato and, like, go run a marathon. I had to start by – I started walking and I started running. Oh, really? And I did a four-mile race. Then I did a half marathon. And it's like – and I built up to it. But I just – just like starting to write, just like starting to say, what if? How do you develop a personal practice that gets you in shape so you can then say, okay, I'm ready to take on the big goal? And even then, you still have to be methodical about it. When you started walking, was it with the idea that you eventually wanted to do a marathon? No, no. My doctor had actually said to me that um, the best thing that I could do to, um, I mean, to be perfectly honest, to help temper the way that hormones can affect you at different points in your life Mm -hmm. was she goes, triple your exercise. Oh, wow. And I was like, are you out of your mind? And she goes, mm-hmm. how much are you really doing? And I was like, I'm power walking three days a week for half an hour. She goes, it won't kill you to triple that. Give it a try. And uh-huh. at first it was daunting. And mm-hmm. I and I took it on. And then after I made it through the first week, I was like, okay, I figured out how I could do this. I was sleeping better. And then I just started walking longer and longer. And when I started going for like eight and nine-mile walks and I was running out of time, I said, I've got to do this faster because I clearly (laughs) feel better. So I started running. And then a really good friend of mine um, saw that I was anxious about being able to do this um, and said, I'll train you. And so ah. I connected through him to the wisdom of the pack, just like you were saying, join a writer's yeah. group. And then I started to find community and information and support and people to share my experience with, and it transformed my life. That's great. You know, one other thing I would just add, and I, I actually mentioned this in the Gutsy Girl Handbook because it's a great tip for work 
regardless of what you're doing. But I interviewed a time management guy once who said the reason we don't do things that we really want to do isn't necessarily because we don't want to do them. Because when I tried writing in my 20s and I couldn't do it, I thought maybe it means I don't really want to be a writer. But he said we make the the task too daunting, and he recommended slicing the salami. And it's kind of what you did by starting with walking. Yes. But in this case, it was about right. Um, do, making the task shorter. And so what I did when I first started, I wrote for only 10 minutes a day. Right. Because I figured I could do that. That's a start. Do, yeah. And what I was not doing when I told myself, write for a couple of hours today, I would always avoid it. But with 10 minutes, Exactly. No, I had no excuses for not doing it. Right. So to go out for me for a three-mile run, that's now half an hour. That's not a big deal. If you said yeah, to me, yeah. Laura, go do 18 miles, that would just not happen right now. <laughs> and you're right, whether it's slicing. When I read that in the book, slicing, you know, the salami, it reminded me of how I think of chunking it out and breaking down complicated tasks into navigable pieces. Yeah. And I, I use that so much with just everything. If I have to write a new speech, I don't tell myself, hey, you got to write this this week. And I go do the outline. And, <laughs> and it's just that sometimes it may be do the first page of the outline for me, but it, it works. It really does. So I have a question for you on the other side of time management, because, you know, part of what we're talking about is how do you take something that's daunting and carve it out and pace yourself? I feel like the other side of that is the way that life itself gets daunting, particularly as you rise into leadership roles, as you have a mm-hmm. lot of people reporting to you, or you're expanding your impact by having your fingers in a lot of pots. How right. did you navigate that as your scope grew? And yet time is finite. Yeah. I think when I used to work at Cosmo and I was writing mysteries then, one of the big questions I got, it was almost always the first question after a speech was, how do you do both? And really what they wanted to know was not how do I write a mystery, but where are you getting your time? And a lot of it for me is being ruthless about saying no, that when I, I do a lot of mentoring and when I mentor successful women who work for me or now in certain jobs, I can tell they're just not being ruthless about saying no, that they aren't taking care of their own boundaries and they're, 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 they need to be the bosses of their personal lives too and the intersection of those personal lives where they with work. So what I would do is I pretty much, this is shocking, but when I ran Cosmo, I left at 5.30 every day. You're kidding me. Nope. You had all that success at Cosmo and you left at 5.30 every day? Yeah, but uh, first of all, I got in early. I'm a big believer that when you are in a leadership position, you look like you own the day by getting in early. Mm -hmm. I dropped my kids off to school. Then after my kids went to bed, I worked for two more hours. But I was working in my home on my own time, and I was having dinner with them every night with my husband. So I also would just – I would go to their games. I would do things, and I would pay the price in terms of – you know, there was a lot of work at Cosmo. I'd have to do it later. But nonetheless, I I said no to what didn't matter as much to me and yes what did. And – I discovered that over time, people just had a sense of, she leaves at 5.30. Let them have that sense. 
Now, it probably boss, also frees them to go home. Right. And I, I was always really great. I would tell all the mothers and fathers on my staff, you are not, you are scoring no points by missing a basketball game or a volleyball game because if you don't do it, it's your choice. It's not mine. I, I want you to do those things. And I think good, some bosses have to be trained a bit mm-hmm. because if your boss knows that he or she can call you at 730 and you're always taking the call, he's going to get used to that. Now, you may work for the kind of guy that expects that, and then you have to decide, is this what I want? But if you were always taking the call, I, I, I had a, uh, a professional friend who was the PR person, for the publicity person for one of the vice presidents of the United States at one point. And she said that she would go home and she would not answer her phone between, let's say, 630 and 830 when she was dealing with her kids. But, but she knew there might be things that were going to happen that she mm-hmm. needed to respond to. So she was back on at 830. But she created that boundary. There are these two hours that's sacred time for me. Of course, if there was some major disaster, she right. was going to be picking up. But she trained people. And people, I think they have to be trained. Because for the, we're in this ridiculous culture now where people work such late hours where they don't necessarily always have to. Right. But and people don't unplug and turn people, off. Right. Because other people are doing it. I'm telling you, 530, my, you know, 14 years, at, you know, I took it to number one and kept it there my entire time. And I realized that wasn't affected by my hours. Right. Of course, as I said, I always worked after, after the kids were in bed. And it's a story that I've heard from um, almost all of the successful women I've spoken to who worked in big jobs while parenting, that um, you have to carve out the time to protect the things that matter, but that part of the reality is the extra work gets done late at night. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, when I first got there, it was more manageable and but as we added so much brand expansion, Cosmo Radio, Cosmo Books, there was no way I could have done it nine to five. Eight well, because part of it is you weren't just you know editing a magazine; it's like almost like creating an empire. So, right. by, by the way, we need to take a short break for a few minutes. But Kate's with us for the entire hour, so we're going to continue our discussion when we come back. In the meantime, if you've got a question about something we're discussing, you'd like to tap into Kate's amazing wisdom, you can reach us at one eight four four Wharton. That's eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. By the way, if you want to tweet, you can. Follow me on at Laura Zarrow. Um, and also you can email into Patty at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Um, our Twitter handle is at BizRadio111. And we really would love to hear from you. So once again, that's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942. And when we come back, I'm going to be talking with the amazing Kate White all about her book, The Gutsy Girl Handbook, Your Manifesto for Success. So stay tuned and we'll be back shortly. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women 
Join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is Kate White, the former Editor-in-Chief of Cosmopolitan Magazine and the author, amongst other things, of The Gutsy Girl Handbook, Your Manifesto for Success. If you'd like to join in the conversation, our phones are open and you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. You can also write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, Kate, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you, Laura. Um, While we were on break, uh, we have a call coming in from Trudy from New York. So, Trudy, thanks so much for listening to Women at Work and joining us today. What's on your mind? Thank you. Uh, I have a question about how you handle a coworker who isn't a team player, been brought to the attention of the manager, and the person has been spoken to, but not much has changed with the coworker's behavior, and now it's bringing down the morale of our entire team. So we're all a little bit concerned and not sure what to do. Wow. Um, and why do you think the boss isn't doing anything about it? It is unclear, but I, I think that um, we're all pretty self-sufficient. So I just want to make sure that I know how to handle it. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, there are these bosses who, when you are dealing with someone like that, they seem immobilized, unable to confront, criticize, critique, and do what's necessary. I think as much as possible, you have to block yourself off from that person and try not to let that suck your energy away. And it might be a matter of, let's say you are given a team project, maybe it can be divided up. It could even be something you suggest to your boss without complaining about this person Like, I'd love to take this section and run with it so that you are not uh, forced to interact and rely on her and deal with her mood and her work ethic for your end of the project. And, you know, as much as you can isolate yourself from it, because unfortunately, if your boss hasn't done anything about it by now, it might mean that your boss is just not one of those people who's going to be decisive enough to deal with it, who ignores these kinds of issues. Trudy, oh, okay. Is that helpful, Trudy? Yes, it is. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Yes. And- um, can I just ask, Trudy, is there a way you think that you can isolate yourself somewhat so you're not so um, I- I- interacting so much with this person and can kind of separate um, I've already done that. I think just it's the morale of our team has been brought down, and that's just kind of a concern. It, it, how would your boss react if you talked about it? Like you don't want to be seen as complaining about a coworker in a whiny way, but there may be a way for you to flip it. Uh, and how do you think your boss would respond if you did raise it in a good way? I think the boss would be receptive to it for sure. I just think that um, it is affecting everyone. So we just kind of all talk about it, but we just feel like something needs to be done. There needs to be some kind of intervention. Yeah, I think if you could put it in business terms, uh, something that's happening where something goals aren't being accomplished as opposed to, oh, she's a mood killer, because (laughs) then that becomes something that your boss is going to be take more seriously. And also, there, um, if, if there's a way for you to suggest a solution to, a possible solution. So it, if your boss is 
stalled somehow, there may be an idea that you present that makes your boss go, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Okay. I'm uh, going to take all of this to heart and see what I can do. Good Trudy, luck, Trudy. And thanks so much for listening and calling in. Kate, part of what I really appreciate about your response is it's on multiple levels. You know, you broke it down into what are actionable items that you can, um, you know, pursue in a way that's good for the business and helps your boss save face. Um, And also embedded in it that when there's that kind of dysfunction going on, you can't just let it sit. Yeah, and it's really interesting, the bosses that don't seem able to deal with that. And you sometimes wonder, is she blackmailing him or what? (laughs) Holy cow, why is he doing anything? As When you were rising up the ranks in leadership roles, how did you learn to give criticism to other people? Because you did it not just as an editor, but as a boss. Wow. I I was on a learning curve with that, Laura. I really was because as a young woman giving criticism, I was never harsh. I was never a bitch. I never yelled. But I would be extra firm sometimes. And what I began to see was that when you came at it with too much scolding in your words, and I, I wouldn't even use a scolding tone, but scolding mm-hmm. in your words, often what happened is the person went into this death spiral that they they just, the the fear that was created, the panic from having that conversation made it worse. So over time, I learned to be much more constructive, talking about what they did positively, even sometimes reshaping the job a little bit. I had a woman who worked for me, and she just, I knew she was a hard worker. She did some things well. She was not doing the job well. And what I ended up doing was totally reshaping the job to fit her skills. And she turned out to be a great performer. So I think the more you can try to do it in a way that's going to make the person feel good, you've emphasized their strengths, you've you've said to them, tell me what I can do to help you deliver 100% on this so that they see you're in their corner and they're less panic-stricken. It also seems like it's a fundamental paradigm shift that you're not being the discipline. It's not about being the disciplinarian or the cop. Like you said, it's not about scolding, but it's about developing individuals and helping them grow more like a teacher, it sounds like. Yeah. And I I wish I'd learned that sooner. I wish I could go back and redo a few conversations. (laughs) The other thing. We all do. Yeah, oh, good. Thank you, Laura. That makes me feel better. Uh, the other thing, too, is I think you've got to do it fairly quickly. And you can see from Trudy's situation, the, the boss is probably trying to buy some time and get a better handle on it. And I've done that. You know, sometimes you decide to work around it. There was a woman who worked for me at one point, and she was a deputy editor and, and really good, and she moved up. After she got had a kid, I think she got a little sidelined in her thinking, her energy dipped, and she just wasn't delivering. But we had enough strong players that we kind of worked around her. But I wish I had just called her in and said to her, hey, I guess what? I miss what you were delivering before, and you're so good, and tell me what you need from me to help you get back to that point because I know you can do it and it may just be some things that are happening here. So 
you, maybe you need more contact with me, but let me know because um, I'm missing that. And just in a very positive way, and maybe that's not even exactly the way I would have said it, but instead I just let myself have, you know, six months with her where it just wasn't working that well. Did she wind up leaving or improving? She ended up leaving. And I think it was partly because she sensed she'd probably gotten bored with it. She'd been there a long time. And I probably could have, you know, I might have been able to turn it around. So she was back to being a high performer. Time there, she was ready for a change. But I still, it would have been better for both of us if I'd had that conversation and we really had that, that our first six months were as good as our exactly because as good as our first because also with what we I think have an increasing understanding of now is that and we talked about it on our show where we talked about the fifth trimester that that when you re-enter work as a working parent um, there are a lot of stressors going on and if the organization can work in partnership with the employee you can help talent. Um, get through a difficult stage and retain and develop the talent for the long run. But there's got to be dialogue around it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even though that conversation didn't happen, and I I wish it had, I've had others where I approached it positively. I talked about their strengths and just getting back on board and it really ended up working out so well. Oh, it can make an one enormous of my best difference. Relationships with somebody who, at one point, I thought, "Gosh, I hope I'm not going to have to let her go," but she's lost her mojo. Well, I helped her get her mojo back, and she's just somebody I so adore completely. Yeah, so you can see you took a different approach, and look at what happened in the end. By the yeah. way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I am talking with Kate White, author of The Gutsy Girl Handbook, Your Manifesto for Success. If you'd like to join in the conversation, you would like some of Kate's amazing advice, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And like our friend Julian Cinnaminson, you can write in at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, Kate, you know... The way that you are helping us learn, you know, from a manager's perspective, how would you talk about it? I want to flip that for a second. What advice can you give us for how to talk to our managers, particularly when we're seeking a raise or a promotion? Mm. Well, one mistake so many people make uh, is that they don't have that conversation early enough. I saw somebody on the Today Show a while ago talking about asking for a raise and they they weren't an expert, but they were talking about go when it's raise time, go on in there. No, you don't do it when it's raise time. You do it months in advance because by the time raise time happens, they've, it's probably already been set in the budget. It's right. So you 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 set up an appointment with your boss. You say something like, "I'd love to just grab fifteen minutes with you." You go in there and you you start by how much you love working there and what what a great rush and pleasure it is for you because that's important for them to hear. They don't you know it can't all be about you and you, you ideally uh, you've done your prep work. You've looked at what people seem to be making in the company right now, what they're making in the field. Mm-hmm. You review all your accomplishments. And you you make a pitch for your for, for your situation. Here's what you've done. Here's what you're looking for. A lot of 
experts now say you should name the number of what you're mm-hmm. looking for and then let them that come, them come down from that. You you have show and tell if necessary. Maybe there's a PowerPoint you want to do to say, look, what this is that project you had me work on. It brought in this much revenue. And you also want to talk about the future, what you hope to do next year. So make it make it as much about them as you. And if they come back with a certain amount, negotiate it. You can say, oh, I'm glad you went for, to bat for me, but I was hoping for this amount. And if they can't do it, ask for more, you know, more paid time off or a tuition reimbursement or the opportunity to represent the company at, at a conference and have your have it paid. So I think the key thing is to think about it a little bit as you would negotiating for a starting salary. It's interesting that you put it that way. And I also want to unpack some of that because I think you gave a lot of really important advice that I want to make sure people capture. So one is it sounds like the very first thing you should do is reach out in an appropriate manner. You know, send an email. You don't just walk into your boss's office and you set a time to talk to each other. Yes. And maybe before, Laura, before that, you've even done your prep work. You've looked into the field. You've listened to the buzz. You've got a sense of what people and guys, if you're a woman, are making in these positions. And so you've you've done your homework. And that's also bringing up a really important point because we know that um, salary patterns at organizations can be really opaque and um, Mm. that men seem much more comfortable historically asking each other what they're making. And women have not felt that this is appropriate. They're very nervous to do so. And I find that when I'm coaching young women who are going through this process, when I say, have you talked to your friends or your peers about what they're making? They look at me like I have two heads. That just seems terrifying. How do you suggest that um, in particular young women approach the process so they can get, because it is essential information. Yeah. And and unfortunately, I do think a lot of people would think it was rude if you said, what are you making? But I do (laughs) think, because I would never have told anyone. First of all, I always tell people, if you think you're underpaid, that's what your gut is telling you, you probably are. Because your gut is basing it on buzz you've heard, just your failure to negotiate on your starting salary that's still eating at you. So you're sitting there going, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm underpaid. You are, honey, if you're thinking it. Then then I think uh, what you, you really have to do is perhaps ask some people in the field, like mentors you have or people who used to work at the company. And you could a good way to say it is, what do you think someone in my position – Uh, people in my position who are really at the high end are making these days because people will feel more comfortable answering that than what did you make when you were in this job? Right. That's a beautiful way to put it. So say that one more time. Say, um, what do you think someone in my position should be making if she were being paid what she really deserves. Right. And so that way you're giving kind of the right test questions they can pull from their own experience or other information they have without exposing their own salaries. Right. If I were the editor of Cosmo still and someone asked me that question, let's say she's about to get a job as editor-in-chief of a magazine. If she asked me that question, I would be very candid with her, but I wouldn't have told her what I was making. Right. 
And and I've been asked that question myself, and I found that the kind of a- the way that you suggest answering it also gives room for when I was asked that question and I was in a role for which I knew I was underpaid, I could at least encourage my friend to aim higher because I had since learned that I was underpaid. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So I think that's a good way. You you're not boxing anyone into the corner doing that. And also, there was something else really important in what you were describing that I want to shine a light on, and it's um, who are you serving when you go in and ask for that raise in the way that you ask for it. So in your book, you had a great section on this, but you you don't go in and say, you know. I think I deserve a raise. I've worked really hard. I've been here a long time, and it's time for me to take the next step. That's not the way to do this, correct? <laughs> yeah, because I was shocked the number of people who would present it that way. And your boss, in some ways, doesn't give a rat's ass about the fact that your your partner took a job, changed jobs and took a pay cut. What they want to know is what what are you going to do for them? And so that's what you want to keep reminding them of your passion, of what you hope to do next year, and why this is the amount you think you should be earning based on this research you've done and your own performance from from this past 12 months. And it sounds also as that it's you can connect it to the value you're planning on bringing and that when a raise is tied to a promotion how do you have a vision for more responsibility it's not just i want a bigger title it's right um i see an opportunity negotiate for if they you don't get everything you want right but that you can also aim for a role that gives you more responsibility thus justifying a pay increase and a salary change yeah Another thing I find millennials do is they expect a raise the minute you give them a stretch assignment. And you have to understand that's often your test, whether (laughs) you're going to be able to do it and be promoted. Do not ask for a raise just because you've been given a new assignment. See that as a chance to prove yourself, learn. And even if you don't get a promotion or a big raise from it, you can take that skill and go elsewhere. And also those kinds of opportunities give you visibility to other people in the organization and your superiors. Oh, definitely, definitely. And uh, back in the baby boomer days, we were we loved those things. We didn't expect a raise for them, but I think today <laughs> people do. So, you know, wh- how can we help young people on the other side? Um, so, you know, you shouldn't jump in and ask to be rewarded too quickly when you're still proving yourself. What are useful measures that any of us could use, but particularly when we're young and it's not clear um, that it is the right time to ask for a raise? Well, a lot of places do have it as a yearly thing, but you really, to me, the thing that I always say, Laura, is it's not enough to do what you've been told to do and do it well. You've got to come up with the kind of big ideas that increase profitability, save the company money, mm-hmm. and really move the needle in some ways. So let's say I'm looking at the articles department of the magazine I'm running and the different players. I'm going to want to give bigger raises to the people who are coming up with great ideas and maybe even tentpole ideas where the idea is connected with, and then we can have 
a conference based on this idea where they're really thinking bigger. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things you want to be asking yourself every year, am I delivering some really big results here? Am I going beyond what I've been told to do? That And I love how you're breaking this down so you can see it. And there's also something interesting in that question. Um, Have you gone beyond what you've been told to do, but there's a particular way to aim that? You're not just doing more. It's not about busy work. It's not about doing somebody else's work. It's about how can you make a new contribution to the organization that helps it meet or exceed its goals or identify new opportunities. It's about a contribution. Right. Oh, I'm I'm glad you clarified that because the good girl instinct is maybe to do more, but it's more busy work. It's more helping out somebody and playing the martyr when really what you want to be doing is delivering that winning idea, the idea that somebody goes, wow, that would make a great column for the magazine or, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad you thought of that. Right. Or that takes a problem and solves it. Right. And what I say, too, and I think I include this in the book, is that you need to be raising your hand for the kinds of things that, beyond coming up with big ideas, for the kinds of things that will get you noticed in Mm -hmm. a way. I just saw a study that in Harvard Business Review that said that men are 20% more likely to get offered the kind of glamour assignments than women and people of color. And these are the assignments that get you promoted. Mm-hmm. There are things like running a new team, representing your co- company at an industry event, taking on a major project for a client. If you're not being offered those, don't wait to be tapped. Raise your hand for them. You say to your boss, you can even say, wow, I was... You know, I was green with envy when Bob <laughs> got that assignment. In fact, it, sometimes a little humor can help it help you navigate a situation that might seem a little awkward. You could say, boy, I am green with envy. I, I want to do that. Tell me what you need me to do to show you that I can do that type of thing, that I can represent the company at the next event. And maybe you would simply say, hey, take us public speaking class, and I would be glad to have you do it. And and sometimes you can just ask yourself, what is missing? A young woman wrote to me because she heard me say that in a speech, and she said she was working as a young associate at a PR firm, and she started to think, what's missing? And one of the things missing was a crisis manual. They did not have a manual to help them deal with a crisis. So she, she put one together, and she did a couple of other things like that, and she said they directly led to her getting a promotion. And so really looking in the same way that you ha- we heard from those, you know, that team that's talking to each other because they see a problem in the organization, the real opportunity is that's there is to do something to fix it. Right. That's right. Without challenging the boss in this case and making it look like Steve or Betsy, who whatever your name is, you're, you're slacking off, you're not dealing with this, and the group had to... You, you you can disguise it somehow. So 
you know, a big part of what you're telling us or, and what I'm hearing from you and what we're learning is about how you learn through the process of your career growth. Um, with the little bit of time that we have left, I have a question for you. How do you keep learning? Who's mentoring you now? Where do you turn <laughs> for inspiration? I just actually had a great mentoring phone call today from a woman who does public speaking, and I just asked her to take a look at my website and critique it. I regularly go to Harvard Business Review lectures in New York City. It might even be the head of Pottery Barn. I find I learn from people in different businesses. I read a lot. I watch um, TED TEDx talks, and I just keep it going. How much and of, course, of with what the murder you... mystery stuff I I do? Um, I also talk to a lot of forensics people. <laughs> I'll bet. How much of this is about what's in front of you, and how much of it is that you're strategically hunting down topics? I would. You mean topics for mysteries? No, I mean the TED talks that you pick, the lectures that you go oh, to. Just, I just want to hear what other people are doing. And curious and curiosity really helps lead to perhaps an idea for something for myself, but mostly I just want to be in the game and be proactive. And it isn't always to find a topic. It's more, gee, let me see what she said. Maybe I can learn from that, not necessarily steal the topic. (laughs) Right. And so it's not um, that kind of, um, it's not like you're going grocery shopping. It's that it's part of a way of being in the world to learn and connect and build relationships and get stimulated and inspired. Absolutely. And it's part of why I love having left Cosmo and having be my own boss is I have more time to do that. That was one of the frustrations of a job that was so, so demanding. I managed to write murder mysteries and raise two kids, but I didn't have the time to watch TED Talks. So <laughs> well, <now> hey, I, <laughs> I have to tell you, we couldn't be more thrilled that you shared the time that you do have with us. So thanks so much for joining us on Women at Work. Thank you, Laura. Great question. I'd also like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. If you have a question about something you heard, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM. Follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111 or me at Laura Zarrow. Special thanks to my beloved producer, our fantastic sound engineer, um, and that's Patty Hall and Danielle Bruno. And I'm Laura Zarrow. You've been listening to Women at Work. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 